everyone. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to tune into my podcast. This is the very first episode. So with that being said, I wanted to provide more of an introduction, let you all know what to expect and what my end goal is with this podcast. So of course, thank you again for taking some time out of your day to tune into this podcast. Uh, I hope that uh, there are some elements of it that you find to be interesting. If you have any suggestions, recommendations, or anything going forward, I'm totally open to that feedback. So some things about me. Um, so of course, my name is Madison, and I was born and raised in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, and I have always had an interest in forensics, uh, the psychology of forensics, um, also the psychiatry behind forensics, and kind of how all of those come together. And my senior exit project in high school actually ended up being uh, the psychological profiles of serial killers from all around the world. Kind of sounds like a morbid subject, I know, but for me, it really is more eye-opening to the fact that there are people that are struggling with mental illness in our society on a daily basis, and not every serial killer uh, was destined to kill, so to speak. Um, There are some things that we can notice in our interactions with people, uh, children's behavior, uh, that we can actually avoid these kinds of things from happening. And with the crisis that is currently taking place in society that is mental illness and the actions that are being taken as a result of this mental illness, uh, when we find out that it's something that is controllable or that we can at least kind of um, reduce the likelihood of that happening, it's certainly something that I think everyone should have uh, some level of interest in. So what my first uh, video is going to be on, or my first podcast uh, episode is going to be on, aside from my introduction to the channel itself, I want to first kind of walk you through the mind of a serial killer. Now, I'm not coming from a place of experience, so to speak, but much of the classes that I took in college were psychology-based. They were um, a little bit of law-based. All of the electives that I took were really psychology and the law and how the two go hand in hand. And basically... That in combination with my degree in humanities, I feel like I've got a pretty good grasp on the way that humans navigate the world and kind of the things to look out for that may help us to become a little bit more sympathetic to those that are walking through their daily lives carrying around this mental illness. So rather than calling them monsters or devils or just non-humans altogether, and we'll get into some stories where those are some descriptions that are used that I have more of a difficulty in arguing in some aspects versus others, but as a whole, uh, these aren't necessarily people that, um, like I said, that were born destined, uh, destined for evil. So a couple of things that I want to share that are really important to take note of is the whole argument of nature versus nurture. So that's been an ongoing Uh, kind of um, argument or debate in society for quite some time. You know, what, how much of a person's upbringing defines who they are into adulthood and what part of who they are as an adult has actually stemmed from just who they are innately. So one of the things that I want to kind of walk you all through is the inside the upbringing of the majority of the serial killers in our history. So first to define a serial killer, um, it's defined as anyone who is killing, who has killed three or more people, usually within a month's gap or more. Um, And there's also typically a pattern of killing or a modus operandi. 
So that is what actually gives serial killers their name of serial killers is because there is that pattern of killing every so often, usually targeting the same kinds of individuals, whether it be the gender, the profession, the race, the age, whatever it may be, there are consistencies across the board in every single case of a serial killer um, for the most part. So whenever a person or a child is born into a family and they are undergoing three different kinds of abuse or one of the three, whether it be sexually, mentally, or physically, all of those things are going to embed in that child either a lack of compassion uh, towards others, a lack of love, or just the inability to feel either one of those things in its entirety. So you all know that whenever we're a child and we're growing up in a household with one or two parents or with grandparents or maybe even in a setting where you have more of a foster type dynamic to your family, there's a lot of uh, influence that those people surrounding you have on you and the, that is the earliest time in your life that you will start to have certain morale and values instilled into you. So when there is not that, that instillment taking place and there's no exposure to those positive feelings and emotions, a person becomes very comfortable and almost disconnected from the feelings of negativity altogether or positivity altogether. So they lack a sense of uh, empathy or um, really care for what they've done. And that's why a lot of times whenever you do see these interviews with the serial killers, they quit very quickly get the title of a monster because we're thinking, oh my gosh, they're not showing any emotion. They're not showing any, any remorse. They just are so cold hearted. And if we're taking it a step even further, we could even say that there is a, a disconnect or a decreased connectivity between that person's amygdala, which is a subcortical structure of their brain that actually processes negative stimuli, and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, or the VMPFC. And that's a cortical region in the front of the brain that actually interprets the response of the amygdala. So if those two things are not working together like they should, then that processing of negative stimuli and the amygdala it's not going to translate into any real strong feelings of negative emotion. So with that being said, those people are not going to, even if they know that what they've done is in essence wrong, they're not going to feel the things that those victims' families will feel. They're not going to feel the way that you or I would feel if they commit these kinds of heinous crimes. So now taking it a step further, let's talk about the whole nurture side of it. So how this person was raised, what family they were born into, taking it back to an absence of family morales or a dysfunctional family, that is going to definitively create a very low self-esteem in that child. The number one abuse that a serial killer undergoes that drives them to take the lives of others in society, innocent people in society, is a feeling of rejection or the constant feeling of rejection. We've even heard those stories where those serial killers actually live in their homes with the bodies of the people that they've killed. And that's a result of that rejection. As sick as it may sound to you or I that aren't struggling with those same internal demons, that person sees that as not only a, an element of control in those moments where they took the life of those people, but now there's an inability for them to reject them because they don't have that life within them or that 
free will to go and do so. So now when those children now grow into adults and enter into society, a lot of times they're living a double life. They have a family, they have kids, or they have a job. But a lot of times, if you take a look at these, the history of these serial killers in their lives, there are going to be failed marriages or affairs or uh, being fired from a job. And that's because they become so focused on the goal of exercising that power and taking the lives of innocent people in society that it becomes almost an obsession for them. They can no longer focus on the job at hand or they become violent or start acting out at work because they feel like they're being controlled. Because unless they're the boss of the place where they're working, they are in a way. Because that employer, that boss is telling them what to do or giving them a boundaries of the behavior that they're going to accept. And when that contradicts with what that person wants to do, then there becomes a lot of personal failures. So they seek out those achievements through their killing. So taking it back to the whole uh, brain and the way that those different uh, negative stimuli either exist or there's a lack of existence in a person's brain, you start to wonder, well, what can we do then? What could we do? What could medical professionals do? What could uh, professionals in these different industries with these extensive backgrounds in the analysis of these individuals, what can they do to help? Well, let's put into perspective the people who have autism, autism spectrum disorder. Those that are high-functioning autistics, they have a lack of ability to detect social cues. So a lot of times when they have difficulty picking up on social cues, they are unsure what the right thing to do in a social context is. But what we do with those individuals is we implement a really structured training for them to actually teach them how to understand and to how to pick up on those social cues. And at that point, what's the right thing to do, what's acceptable and what's not? So what would make us feel that if we can take somebody who is a non-functioning autistic individual or somebody who does have autism, who has had the success with improving their quality of life from a social environment or a social standpoint, why do we feel like it's not something that we can do for these other individuals? So that kind of brings me to my, to my next point. So there's a difference between psychology or being psychotic and being in psychopathy or being a psychopathic. So the difference between those two is a, somebody that's going into an episode of psychosis is at a complete loss of their sense of reality. That's schizophrenia. That's bipolar. The glutamate system is dysregulated. So the overstimulation of that could lead to manic phases, delusions, hallucinations. The lack of stimulation could create a blunted or a negative effect. Taking it a step further, you can actually have both of those things happen at the same time from different receptor sites in your brain. When that happens, these episodes of so-called mania take place and somebody becomes completely unaware of the world around them and what's surrounding them. So psychopathy is actually 
a personality disorder like narcissism, that's a more permanent, less curable disease, but it's going to be a bit more predictable, so to speak. So, of course, those two differentiating factors can also help determine whether or not a serial killer is going to be organized versus disorganized. An organized serial killer is somebody that is more methodical. Uh, They lure somebody in with ploys. They abduct, then they kill. They get rid of the bodies. They put them in a secluded place. They are aware and have a sound knowledge of forensic science. No evidence is left. They have above average IQs. That's why these individuals are the most dangerous because they are very difficult to catch. And they are much smarter than a lot of us. Uh, They have the IQ of a genius. So what I really want this channel to be more than anything and this podcast to be more than anything is a sense of awareness. So now that I've given a little bit of background information on kind of what can contribute to these issues, I want to spend each episode really telling you all and sharing the stories of these different people in society, whether it be from 50, 60, 70 years ago or from two weeks ago. So you all can become a bit more aware because the issue that is exist in society that is mental illness, as long as it's being defined as an incurable issue or something that is just always going to be there, it's going to always be there. But it starts with us becoming aware not only of the struggles that other people are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, but also making them aware that the struggles or the, the thoughts they're having are not normal, but they don't have to be permanent. So that's what I want this to be about. And if anyone has suggestions or recommendations uh, that you all would like me to talk about a particular person or case, I am more than happy to do so. I also want to throw in a video um, on Mondays that's a missing persons case uh, because I do also feel that there are a lot of situations and circumstances that happen where people start to lose interest when it's been too long and a case has gone cold. But the feeling of loss and devastation that a family or loved one still continues to feel on a daily basis that nothing else is found or done to either bring that person home or bring them closure. You know, that, that doesn't dissipate those things that they're feeling. It doesn't eliminate that, that real emotion and pain that those people are going through. So I think any sense of awareness that you can bring to those missing person cases can be, can make all the difference in the world. Uh, So I hope that you all enjoy the introduction. I hope it piques some level of interest with you all. If you have questions, please feel free to reach out. Um, But otherwise, I look forward to uh, chatting with you all soon. Have a great day.